Welcome to the Death Studies podcast, a podcast dedicated to the breadth and diversity of voices in and around the academic field of death studies. With your hosts, Dr. Renske Visser and Dr. Bethan Michael Fox. Let's get started. Good morning, Renske. Good morning, Beth. I was just reflecting this morning. How are we already in December 2022? I feel this year has flown past. I don't know how you... I feel that every year. <laughs> I the years get shorter, right? Like, how's it happening? Yeah, I think it's the joys of getting older. Yeah, the days are long, but the years are short. Yes. And we have an exciting announcement and you are on our social media this will not be any kind of surprise but we have launched a limited edition pink sweater so we gave power to the people and let people vote on twitter and dusty rose was voted as the most favorite color and we've also decided to make some sweaters in the number two option which is hot pink so if you want a dusty rose or hot pink sweater you can go to our coffee page and get one in your preferred size yeah we're going to pick them up today from our local printer in in penryn in cornwall so that will be exciting i'm gonna try some on and i think dusty rose sounds like maybe a country singer or possibly uh, the author of a series of erotic novels. I don't know, but I'm very excited about Dusty Rose. So we've also got some other good news, which is that in December, we're going to be releasing a very special bonus episode for you. And I think that, yeah, I think listeners will really enjoy it. And I think it's got some really nice festive connections in terms of thinking about how Christmas can actually be quite a difficult time. So if it is a tricky time for you around this festive period as we get closer into it, rest assured that a special episode that might soothe those more challenging days will be coming to your ears from the Death Studies podcast on Christmas Eve. I'm so excited to release that one. And there's actually also kind of a connection between that episode and our episode today, um, which is with Mandy Gosling, because she also speaks a bit about, yeah, the difficulties of celebrating Christmas when you've lost a parent. And so a lot of our interview today, I won't say too much about it beforehand, but Mandy lost her mother at quite a young age and has experienced some bereavements quite young in life. And in the interview, she speaks about an anthology, which is called My Mother's Story, Gone Too Soon. And it's edited by Michelle Hahn and Marilyn Norrie. And Mandy contributed a chapter to it. And it's about people writing their mother's stories. And I thought it would be nice if I read out the writing prompts that the contributors have been given, because I think it's just really lovely. So write the story of your mother's life, just the facts from beginning to end in less than 2000 words, where you are just a footnote. When you are finished and when you are ready, read your story out loud to at least one person. So this is Marilyn Norrie's writing prompt and she's done a couple of um, collections where people write about their mother's story and I think it's such a nice idea because also like Mandy's chapter in this book as well by framing it this way it's not about you and your loss but it's really centering the mother and who they were so also I will write a, a bigger review on dead good reading early next year but 
some of the chapters have been, it's so interesting to really delve in or to speak to the people who've still known your parents and really yeah, create a lively story of who they are. And one chapter is written in the I form, which I also thought was really ch- interesting. So it's not my mother did this, but kind of really going into the shoes of the mother. And yeah, Mandy's chapter, I would definitely, if you're interested in mother loss and bereavement and storytelling, then this is definitely a book for you. Yeah, that sounds wonderful. And it's definitely going to be one I'm going to bear in mind for my Christmas gifting of books this year. Now, our guest today, Mandy, reached out to us really quite some time ago when we were early on in the podcast and we sorted out an interview and, and we did that. And can you remember what month it was? I think it was March, March 2022. March time. Yeah. So so quite a while back. And since then, Mandy's developed the website that she talks about in this episode. So in the episode, she talks about a website and the resources that are listed there and the wonderful things you can go to find it and she mentions a few times that it's going to be updated and it's great to be releasing this now because it has been updated and it's looking fantastic so we'll pop in the show notes the link to that website where you can go and find information including a therapist directory support information on books podcasts including our podcast thank you very much mandy for that and you can contact mandy as well so there's also information on there about her and about the organization that she heads up which is called ABC Grief, which she talks about in this episode as a community and as a place where people can go to find support. So we really hope that you find this valuable. I think there's some wonderful advice in this episode, not just at that special question at the end that we always ask, where we ask for a bit of advice, but all the way through, there's just some really wonderful advice that we'll talk a bit more about at the end. So next up, we'll give a brief bio and then you can dive in. Mandy Gosling is a UKCP and BACP accredited psychotherapist, researcher and author specialising in unresolved grief experienced by adults and couples who were bereaved as children. As a bereaved child herself, Mandy completed a research MA in 2016 to understand childhood parental bereavement from a psychological and spiritual perspective and then established ABC Grief, the central focus for her private practice in High Wycombe. She is a contributing author in the anthology My Mother's Story, Gone Too Soon, from which she co-presented a poster at the inaugural European Grief Conference and is currently collaborating on a phenomenological research project to investigate the long-term consequences of delayed and prolonged grief in adults bereaved as children. Mandy continues to drive awareness in this niche and often overlooked area of grief through conversations in the media, podcasts and bereavement community. Find out more at www.abcgrief.co.uk or follow on Twitter using at ABC Grief and on LinkedIn under Mandy Gosling. Welcome, Mandy. Thank you so much for joining us. Can we please begin by asking you to give us an overall introduction to yourself and to your work? Sure. Well, I'm a psychotherapist. I work with individuals and couples um, in private practice in High Wycombe, and I have a special interest in working with adults who were parentally bereaved as children. Much of my other work is around childhood trauma, relationships and grief. How I got here? Well, I'm bereaved myself. Uh, My mother died when I was nine years old. My 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 grandfather died the previous year, my mum's dad, so um, I was eight. 
And then I'm an only child. So uh, after my mum died, I just lived with my father, who was quite a challenging man. He was emotionally unavailable. And then when I was 18, he uh, sold our family home and moved away. And at that time, I went to live with my, my nana, who had been a really significant part of my life, uh, my mum's mum. And I lived with her and she died when I was 21. So death and loss has been an enormous part of my life in my early years. And, you know, looking now um, at how that was handled, um, it was handled very differently to how it is now. You kind of just got on with it. Um, children weren't really incorporated into, you know, a, a, a parental loss. And there was certainly nothing in schools uh, that, that supported children. So you're, you're kind of at sea, really. And that's a common theme that I see in my work where, you know, children go back to school the following day, you know, back then. Um, it's just what happened. Uh, it was of that time. Thank you so much for sharing that with us, Mandy. And can I please ask you to share with listeners what ABC Grief is, as that's an organisation that you've set up and are leading? Um, ABC Grief is, uh, stands for Adults Bereaved as Children and Grief and uh, was an idea that evolved after my research. Uh, and in, in 2017, uh, when I was researching, um, I began to realise that there was really limited resources for people who had been parentally bereaved in childhood. And much of what I found focused on things like depression as, a, as an outcome. And there was, just, there was just really limited resources for adults. Um, there, was, there was much around sort of the needs of the child. So there's, there's, a, lot of, there's a lot of books and, and research papers written around, you know, what, what, do the child, what does the child need? So different to when I experienced it, what happens to children? How do we support children? And the research kind of went in that area. But I wanted to kind of move that forward because there were plenty of people like me who had been bereaved. I mean, the, the stats are one in... One in twenty, as a rough estimate, they can't actually fully give a, give an exact figure. But a, approximately one in twenty children will will lose a parent by the time they're sixteen. So, from the research, I I I thought about it and I thought, well, what 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 can I do? And I bought a name um, a domain name, and I I started out on Twitter. That's kind of where it started, you know, it was like, well, that was the easiest option because I'm certainly not technically minded. And, um, you know, it's not my forte of, of, well, how do I build a website? Um, so it started out on Twitter and it, it just sort of grew from there. Um, and the, and the, I mean, you know, I'd, I'd got the domain name and, and, I, and it just evolved and I became known in my professional bodies and, you know, where psychotherapists put their um, kind of advertising. And it, it, then, it then started to grow and, you know, people were interested and, you know, it was, a, it was, a, it was kind of a hidden topic. Um, 
you know, as a, as a child, you know, people don't talk, as a child, you don't talk about it. You just go through life. Or if you're a teenager, there's a lot of shame associated with it. So it remains hidden. And I just wanted to keep conversations going about an area that I felt was, you know, that I'd experienced that was really important. After, since 2017, the website is still not built. It's currently being built, though, right now. Um, and a new website, I've got somebody to do it, is developing it. And my, my focus on it is that it will be a resource. Um, so things like books, articles, um, blog posts, people's experiences, you know, what they found helpful to grow into this sort of central resource for people who've been parentally bereaved, you know, as a child. And then, you know, I thought, well, I'm just one person. I, I, I only have one voice. And so, you know, develop it further in, you know, a resource for therapists, you know, because there are people like me who, who also have been parentally believed and, and work as therapists. So bringing that all together and because bereaved children, it's not just about grief work. It's about childhood development. It's about trauma and it's about grief. And so it's a blend of skills um, that are needed to, to work with people in this way. Thank you, Mandy. Now, the title of your, should I call it an organisation? Would that be the right or company? Yeah, I, I, I don't really know what to call it. You know, I toyed with the idea of a charity, but then you've got funding. I think it is. It's kind of like an umbrella organisation where people can feed into it, you know, and I'm happy for people to feed into this because we're all learning from each other. And that's, that's my hope is that it's a community, really. There are communities out there. There are, there are things on social media. So there's a group Winston's Wish has called Adults Bereaved as Children. And, and, and I've been to, you know, some of their events and spoke up for Adults Bereaved as Children, you know, have a voice. But they work with children and that is their, that's their mandate. They just work with children. But they, from some of their research they did, they, they set up a Facebook group and and it's great it's really good that the, there is this space for people to say how they feel the bit that's missing is the therapeutic intervention the healing part the how do we get past the 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 the, the grief or not get past the grief but how do we incorporate the grief how do we integrate that grief and it's great that people are there are talking about it it keeps the conversation going but i still think there's more there's more to be done um, so that bringing academia, research, books, you know, information, then giving it to everybody, general public, because there's a, there's a distance between the two. And so we'll call it um, ABC Griefers. I like that community idea. And the ABC, we understand, stands for Adults Griefers yeah. Children. And before the interview with you, this got Ernst and I talking about yeah. the different ways that adults might have been bereaved as children. So you've spoken about those that have been parentally bereaved. And of course, you, you've also said that you yourself also lost grandparents under the age of, of 21, both grandparents from one side. And perhaps obviously other people experience different kinds of losses. And um, perhaps the significant loss of a pet was one that we were talking about. 
that the loss of a sibling, losses that are different, but all come under that umbrella, perhaps, of adults bereaved as children. And we wondered if you might talk to us a little bit about that notion of that broader category, adults bereaved as children. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all adults are bereaved as children. You know, loss is, loss is part of life. It's, you know, from from the first day of life we 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 lose the comfort of our mother's womb you know we're we're held into the world you know in loss and you know adults bereaved as children is about traumatic loss in the developmental process other losses now it depends if they're so like for me example because i hadn't processed my mother's loss losing my grandmother at 21 with no support or adults around me to help me through that process was again another traumatic loss that was then becomes compounded but the normal losses in childhood as we experience so it may be a grandparent so um, or a pet or a friendship those are held within the fabric of our attachment figures so they are soothed by those around us, you know, in the context of safety, um, woven into the story of our life. There is no sense of threat to the self when other losses are experienced. If the parents there, you know, are able to digest it and hand it back in a manageable way the child's sense of safety is not compromised in any way. Mum and dad are still there in that moment. It's challenging and they, and they help to weave it in. Um, and it becomes, you know, there is love and then there is loss. And the two kind of have this dance together. ABC grief, adults bereaved as children, experience traumatic loss. And that occurs in, you know, the time of development of the self. And, and that then creates a complex challenge to, to navigate then each stage of the developmental process. Um, and, and research does show us that traumatic loss has an impact on healthy ego development. Um, and this is the foundation in which each child sets out to realize the next developmental task. So it's like the building blocks of life. And so when a traumatic loss comes in, that becomes compromised and, you know, can render a person emotionally vulnerable and, you know, attributes to difficult coping strategies. You know, there's insufficient ability to cope with things because there's a great book uh, by Maxine Harris. It's quite an old one um, called The Loss That Is Forever. And, you know, there's a great chapter in that where she talks about how love and loss become intrinsically linked in the psyche because it's the primary caregiver. And so it, it compromises the whole developmental process because the safety is compromised because we're hardwired to attach to our parents they provide safety without them we don't survive and you know with child development we are hardwired to attach we are hardwired to please our parents adapt to everything that makes us safe makes us you know get food get love get shelter because we can't do that on our own 
And so this is the difference between normal losses and a developmental loss because safety is compromised. Um, and Kubler-Ross and Kessler write about this. They, 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 they suggest that experience of bereavement in childhood will play out in adult life. Um, and, and there's many more that will, will kind of, you know, corroborate that. Um, it may determine how safe the world feels, um, how successful friendships might be. And kind of one of the big ones is how romantic relationships are navigated, which is why, which is why I then trained as a relationship therapist. I wanted to understand the theory um, behind bereaved children and the difficulties in romantic relationships. And it kind of makes sense because we take all of that which we've experienced, all the, the wounds and tragedies of our life, and we just put those into our relationships. And when you think about it, all, all of those, you know, friendships, safety, romantic relationships, they're the fundamentals of life and, and, and an essential part of, of human existence. Thank you. I think that helps to, to clarify some of those complexities. And one of the other things we wanted about in terms of terminology is that you're using the word child. But what you've said here about your own experience of your experience of losing your nana and another experience is happening perhaps at the age of 21, that maybe you have quite a fluid notion of how we might define that. Uh, I know that Renska's master's work looked at parental bereavement in, in young adulthood in the Netherlands, and that's sort of a group between childhood and adulthood. And I previously used to teach some of the Jeffrey Arnett stuff on emerging adulthood as a sort of stage. How important is it to you to think of, of a definition of childhood as perhaps under 16, under 18, under 21? Or is it for you more about that idea of development that, that you were just talking about and a sense of, of safety and a primary caregiver? I, I would look at it as a developmental process. And it's kind of interesting what we how we think of children, you know, as a, as a number and... We know that developmental process doesn't end until age 25 uh, from, you know, neuroscience research. And yet we think of adults being as 18. Um, and that's, that's a big difference. When, I, when, I'm, when I'm sat with somebody and when I work with somebody, I look at the unique experience because... Everything has a contributing factor. It will depend on the age of loss. It will depend which parent died. You know, if you're, you know, whether that's your role model, for example, you know, with a boy with a man and a, and a girl with a mother. What the relationship was like with the parent. Uh, what the environment was like prior to the death. You know, how was the sense of self-developed prior to the traumatic loss and then what it was like post-death you know what what was there what was available for the child to be able to to process that um there is no fixed template there really isn't because certainly in the years i've been doing it now I just look at what a person is presenting with. We we can't put this in a nice neat box. It's not neat, you know. And and at every stage, 
there is a, a, a cognitive and emotional capacity of the child. Um, so, for example, in my own experience, I remember, I, well, I was actually, I was told by a, 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 my, my oldest friend who lives in Australia, she came home um, a few years back and she told me something I couldn't remember. You know, we were on the swing together and I just blurted out, my mum's dead, you know, like just like that. And, and that's what, say, some of younger children will do. There, there isn't an emotional capacity to, to process that. But it doesn't mean that the child is not impacted by it. But in my experience, I, rem- I do recall people saying, oh, she's not bothered about it. Because, because you know, you blurt this out. I remember working with somebody a long time ago who'd, who'd experienced, you know, a, a parental death and had a sister. And while she was trying to sort it out, her sister just went and put on, you know, the Disney movie. Because that's all a child can do, dependent on where they are in their development. It doesn't mean it's not impacted them. And, and I think as, as adults, we need to see what has happened. But of course, then that's not processed. It's kind of like suspended in time. And then, you know, after the death, you know, the, the being, being a good child and not displeasing the remaining parent, you know, because now... I'm looking and I've got 50% chance of survival because only one is left. And everything, everything in childhood is about survival. How do I get through this so that then I can take care of myself? So you might be a good child or you might become disruptive to get the attention and get the attachment. And it, and it depends on each individual, you know, because what's happened is the freedom of the child to just be a child is lost. It's gone. And it goes underground because for, for most of us, those feelings are not processed um, because, you know, like for me, you know, back in the 70s, there was no support and the adults around you weren't able to understand and, you know, maybe they were dealing with their own grief. You know, and some interesting thoughts that come out, you know, uh, that parents have deliberately left. You know, there is, the, you know, that's where the abandonment stuff comes in. I mean, there's generally a strong abandonment wound with with children who have been parentally bereaved. And then, you know, you can you can flesh it out into the kind of things of, you know, under six, six to 12, um, early adulthood. And, and each stage will will be different you know under six will generally have no memory and then there's an absence you know to what was there and you know they they might imagine what is there but don't really have a sense of memory it's considered that six to twelve is the most difficult because there is emotional capacity to understand what's happened but not to be able to sufficiently manage those emotions and then, you know, teenage is, is turmoil anyway. You know, everything's up in the air, um, everything's heightened. And it become, can become more heightened. I've noticed often in teenagers, there another presentation in that they just want to fit in into their peer group. And so, um, interestingly, it's not spoken about like, 
like their pet like their peers don't know what's happened because they just want to feel normal and so again it gets kind of shut down and and goes underground and of course you know when when you look at all of those presentations and then the developmental process and studies suggest that one is not fully developed you know and completed that process without the formation of intimate relationships and you know being able to to have those and progress through to that point because you've got to successfully complete the developmental processes and then if those are not processed then as we know loss is part of life how do then the the next lot of losses that come in how are they handled and that you know those those new losses can trigger the unresolved grief in early life bereavement so it's it's just it's just so so different for everybody but but it's always there it is always there for me because I like my master's as Beth said was on young adults in the Netherlands who were bereaved in like late teens early 20s and that expression what you just used around normalcy and like a lot of them were asking me as well is it still normal that I'm crying is it still normal that I'm doing this is it still normal that I'm doing why and like exactly like your organization they were looking for tools or someone to reassure them and often it was the person they wanted reassurance from was their deceased parents that they couldn't ask the questions of like am I doing this all right so I think it's really good that you are (laughs) giving more attention to this and also this is the way my brain works I've been reading uh, Seamus O'Reilly's did you hear mommy died um is, which is a memoir about his mum dying when he was aged five. So what, your anecdote about being on the swing and blurting it out, he was five at the time and he's from a big Irish family, one of 11 children. And at the wake, he was bouncing down the house with a smile on his face, announcing to everyone, did you hear, mommy died. <laughs> so as you said, not having that emotional capacity to realise that that is something bad or negative. Yeah. And, and, and it can feel shameful. I mean, I, th- I think a lot of, you know, when, when, I, when I sit with people, you know, sometimes in their 50s or 60s, and there's still that emotion arising. Um, is it normal? Yes. Yes, because it's not processed. It may be, you know, 40, 50 years ago, uh, but, but, but it's there. Yes, it is normal to, to, to say absurd things or do absurd behavior or be angry or be sad. And yeah, I'd like to read that book for sure. It's incredibly funny. It's it, Despite it being on parental bereavement, his family, because he's one of 11, it, it's completely bonkers. And he writes in such a clever, <laughs> funny way that I was literally laughing out loud. <laughs> so definitely, I can recommend it to anyone. And Uh, We've talked a bit more like hypothetically about like theories around loss and death and the experience of parental bereavement. If we can move on to some of your professional practice and some examples um, of those bereaved as children who come to you for advice and help. Are there any commonalities in terms of grief, but perhaps also in terms of what they would like from you and your um, professional role? There are there are kind of themes and, and nuances that that come. 
Some of the common themes are around the challenges in relationship, um, fear of abandonment, or uh, and that that can present itself in fear of getting too close, so difficulty in relationships or overattachment. I'm sure my ex-husband won't mind me sharing this, but when when he would leave the house, I mean, sometimes to you know just go to work. I would be in distress. You know, I kind of have this sort of funny image of myself kind of hanging onto his ankles as he's trying to walk out the door. I was anxiously attached and, you know, that's what, you know, comes into relationship. You know, the fear that this person I'm now attached to is going to leave again because that's what's wired in. You know, there is this, and it's it's not something, you know, you have to do the work to be able to, transform that and process that you know people people come to me and they say oh well you know I'm trying to stop doing this but it but it's part of our you know the way our neural networks have then developed in this way where we have this kind of out of body experience it just happens Um, and it's normal you know, our parent died, the person, you know, that we love the most. And now I'm attached to somebody else and they might, something might happen to them. Somebody might, they might die. It's not rational thinking, but it's, it's survival. I might not survive if this happens. It might happen the same as before, you know, and this is where the kind of this love and loss becomes intrinsically linked. A lot of people I see with self-esteem, issues because obviously you know the ego development is compromised um emotions anger and sadness like i can't tell you how many times i have to say they are normal you know we we live in a sanitized society now where they're considered not okay and there's this message that emotions are in some way bad i can't i can't quite compute that Um, feelings are meant to be felt there is a reason why we have feelings we're human beings and and in for many um, adults bereaved as children you know a lot of that is still unprocessed material so think there's things like general anxiety death anxiety a common one health anxiety that that's relatively common where you know, there's something wrong with me. I mean, and, and I, I, ref, I mean, as I began to see it more when I was working with people, I reflected on my own, you know, journey, you know, because, you know, I'm fairly far down the road now. And I remember feeling it myself. I remember having, uh, it's a bizarre story, but I remember feeling, uh, I mean, it was a, um, I probably had a virus or something, I had a lymph node in my neck. And I remember being distraught that I'd got cancer. I mean, my mother died of cancer. I was going to go. I, w- I was going to go to the catastrophizing place. I've got cancer. I'm going to die, because that's what I knew. You didn't get past a certain age. You died when you were young. Now, in my rational mind, of course, that. But but you're not thinking rationally. You know, the worst thing has happened to us, so we catastrophize. We think the worst thing is going to happen again. There is, you know, depression. Um, again, that might be part of the grief process. 
Lack of joy, really interesting one. You know, we think of joy as, you know, the child part of self, you know, where the freedom to just, to just be and experience that. You know, when you see children, you watch children play, you know, with wild abandonment, you know, often we have lost that. It's like we've stuck in time and we fear, you know, the next thing, it might be taken away. Should we feel joy? I had a very interesting experience. My granddaughter's three years, just three years old. And the first Christmas she was born. And it's interesting to, to even comprehend that a grandchild can activate your own joy. I used to be fairly bar humbug about Christmas. And... You know, and I realise now it wasn't that I didn't like Christmas, it's what Christmas represented. You know, it was family. I didn't have family. It was all, and even though when I had my own children, I still did Christmas, but I wasn't really involved with it. It was just Christmas. And the year my granddaughter was born, you know, we had our first Christmas. She was nine months old. And I had the most overwhelming experience where suddenly, I could feel it. I could feel this joy that I had never felt before. My family looked at me and, you know, my, my, my two children were going, what's happened to you? Like, really, what, where have you come from? You know, I bought a flashing Santa for the lawn. You know, I went and bought, um, you know, millions of baubles for the tree and I decorated the house. And it was just a such a different experience and you know that was three years ago so I was 55 it hadn't come in until then and suddenly I was able to experience this joy that had been suspended I mean I'd experienced joy along the way but it was just another layer it was a deeper layer that I was able to you know, it's like, I always think of it like, you know, there's like these little little bubbles in the glass, you know, like with a fizzy drink, they kind of come to the surface and pop open. And it was fantastic. And, you know, I've done it ever since. I was able to, you know, integrate that into my life, this joy. And that you never think it's possible to, to fully feel until you feel it. I see, I see a lot of overachievement and burnout. And there's a, there's a lack of ability to see one's vulnerability, you know, so, you know, it's down to me because actually that's maybe what happened. It was down to you, you know, you had to make sure there was dinner or that everything was okay or that you may have to look after uh, other siblings. And so you have, you become self-sufficient as a bereaved child. So uh, that that's often there, you know, it's like it's 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 the moment, you know, you hear, you know, you're struggling to get get the cereal from the top shelf. And your other half says. You can ask me, you, you forget, you forget that there is somebody there that will help you because you've you've been so self-sufficient. And then. I also work with people who have parenting challenges. 
So, you know, how do you learn how to be a parent? Well, you learn it from a template from your own parents. So, well, how do I do that? I might not know. So I help people, you know, develop that in a variety of ways, you know, to trust themselves that they can, that we might use archetypes. We might use um, other, other people that they can draw upon, kind of the missing pieces in the psyche that we can't go back and get, but we can find them through a way of, in, in adult life. And I think when you see these presentations, it's as though, as though you know, the grief has stayed suspended in time. And until that ego is strong enough to, to face the pain of loss, because up until that point, you know, there's the, the difference between pain and suffering. You know, suffering is kind of like this whole mass of stuff because you can't face the pain. And it's when you can face the pain that you can bring pain alongside joy and, the, and that they coexist. And that, that's kind of the healing process. It's not to say, well, it never happened. It did. But you're able to hold the pain well enough, you know, alongside the joys of life, you know, as Jung would call it, kind of shadow work. You know, once the ego's strong enough, you can then step into the, you know, the dark bits. And, you know, I reflected on this when you kind of asked me the question and I realised, you know, to, to train as a therapist, I had to have four years of therapy and... It wasn't until I came to my MA further down the road that I did my grief work. I did four years of therapy and never talked about my mum. I mean, you know, on reflection, that was, was bizarre. But what I realised was that I was doing ego strength work. I was developing myself enough that... When I went on to do my master's, which was a whole nother thing. I mean, I, it's interesting how the defences come in and you try and avoid looking at it. And I remember the conversation, you know, with my tutor about, you know, what would my research question be? You know, I hadn't explored the option. What would it be? And, you know, suddenly this bolt of lightning came out of what the research question was. And I can remember viscerally feeling, no, definitely not that. I don't want to do that. I was repulsed by it, surely not, you know, and it was, that was in the beginning of 2015. And, you know, I was 51 years old, it was 42 years after my mum had died. And I was still trying to defend against facing the pain of that loss. My master's was the best and worst thing I ever did. It was, it was, it kind of ripped my insides out, put them all out on a table and I cleaned them off and put them back in. And so it's really common to see people in their, you know, 30s, 40s and 50s because they have to be strong enough to be able to face the pain, you know, and move themselves out of suffering into pain. And occasionally I do get younger people. And that's really joyful because they then get longer to live in a, say, perhaps in a more joyful state. And it is about holding pain and joy together.
That's beautiful. I was I wrote down at the start of the interview when you said one in twenty children roughly uh, are parentally bereaved because I remember when I was trying to find the number of parentally bereaved people in the Netherlands. There are no numbers, so I'm also curious to see where you would find them. But it is quite a common experience. But then I think in research, it's not really touched upon that much. So our next question is. Have you found much research out there that focus on this topic and what do they get right and what is missing in this research that is out there? There is ongoing research. I mean, when I did my master's, I, you know, and that's why I, I went to the question of, of, of researching it, because like you, I, I found limited availability. And I suspect a lot of research is not published. I certainly know from my own uh, training organisation that there is other research there on this, but it's not published. It's a really difficult topic to research because it has to be done retrospectively. And how do you know what's going to happen until it happens? It's one of those, it's one of those topics, like, for example... I didn't know that I would be triggered again as a grandmother. I mean, not not like, you know, in my, my early part of my work, but going through the layers of it. I didn't expect that. I didn't expect, you know, the most joyous day of my life, my first granddaughter is born. And then I'm sat with grief. But it was just that it needed more acknowledgement, more delving into you know, and it was a moment in time. It wasn't consuming, but it was there. I mean, I'm obviously very self-aware now of what it, what these feelings feel like. And I kind of sat with that notion that, you know, love reminds us of our loss and loss reminds us of our love and they, they sit together. But it is limited. I mean, and I, I chose to do um, a heuristic methodology for mine, you know, my lived experience up until the time I completed it, but now I have more lived experience because that was six years ago. And so there's more that I couldn't anticipate, you know, what it might bring into it. And really that's where I, you know, sit with my clients is the, you know, the heuristic process. I sit with their lived experience. And that's why, you know, I feel to have a voice in this area is so important because these are lived experiences that are not documented um, you know, I continue to be in that process myself, you know, reflecting what I'm feeling, how am I experiencing it? Why is that anxiety? Why am I triggered? Why have I shut down? What's happening? But these are lived experiences. These are the things that need to be voiced and understood and normalized and explored and healed. And, you know, in this area, research isn't just about grief. It's about child development. It's about trauma. And an interesting phenomenon happened maybe two or three years ago. What I, what I began to notice was that there were many what I call second generation bereaved that were coming. Um, you know, I, I fill out an assessment and, you know, we, we do, you know, mum and dad always. And then... I had a client who, after working with her for some time, talked about this sort of transgenerational grief that she'd experienced in her family. And I'm thinking, 
why don't I ask the question? Why didn't I ask the question? And this second generation, or maybe even beyond that, because let, for example, you know, yes, if you're parentally bereaved, that's fairly obvious. But there's the unobvious that sits in therapists' rooms of my mother or my father was bereaved. So how did that impact them in how they parented me? Because it will do. And I think therapists need to be more aware of that. That there is this unspoken, this unspoken level of trauma. You know, if you think one in 20 approximately, think about how that impacts at a societal level. It's huge. Yet it's not spoken about. Why not? Uh, my dad's dad died when my dad was 12. And it is very much a... is open about it in as much as if you ask or sort of yeah. want to talk about it. But I think because I'm the youngest of five as well, it has been a long time for him between that. And he was a bit of an older father when he yeah. had me. But that sort of tension between spoken and unspoken, I think, can be quite interesting. And I know Renska's doing um, Memoir March as part of her book review blog that, that she runs called Dead Good Reading. And a lot of my research is, is all my degrees were in English literature. And I wonder if memoirs are a place where there is a real wealth of this this kind of knowledge and lived experience. Because as you were saying, yeah, things come to you at different times and things sort of develop and I like the word compost. They kind of break down and come together again over time in different ways. And then people reflect on them at different points in their life. And obviously a memoir is a wonderful way of, of engaging with that or any sort of writing. Yeah, I, I, um, I've, I've recently uh, been part of an anthology, um, which is, it's not a memoir per se. It's um, the, the, the book is My Mother's Story Gone Too Soon. And it's 20 authors who are parentally bereaved and what it what it did and 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 even going through that process last year activated more of my grief process as I would expect where we wrote the story of our mothers and so you know for me you know well, I have two people left that I know that I can turn to to give me a brief overview. And and then the reflection piece of what it feels like. So it, it, it is, it's not a memoir, but it is a story. And it was an interesting process because it's sort of based around narrative therapy theory. That actually... I felt closer to my mum knowing about her, writing about her than I had ever done. And that was really a phenomenal experience because again, you know, it's like, it's like, it's not spoken about, it's pushed away. It, it, you know, the psyche keeps still pushing away. In fact, I wrote right in my reflection that my first, I did three drafts of it. And my first draft was using the word mother I was unable to use the word mum. You know, it was like, oh, I'm just, I'm curious. Why am I using, I never called her mother. Why would I call her mother? But it was the way in which my psyche was still trying to push it away until I then brought it in and felt more. 
and connected with her more and understood her life. And actually, I'm a part of her. And there are many correlations. So I think writing your own story or writing the story, and in fact, I've, I've used that with some of my clients. and It's been really successful. Write about your parent, your dad, your mum who died. Get to know them. You, you, you come from them. And it's beautiful. Yes, they're not there, and that's tragic loss. But they are a part of you. I love that. I think writing can be so therapeutic. Yeah, absolutely. And you've spoken about it a little bit. So you have various counselling qualifications, and you also have an MA in transpersonal counselling and psychotherapy. So what drew you specifically to counselling and psychotherapy? Well, I kind of didn't, I didn't intend on uh, ending up there. I, I read, I read my first psychology book when I was 20. And I, I was, I guess I was, I was in, I guess from my own experience, I was interested how people functioned, how they worked. And I didn't, I didn't kind of have a notion of going into it. I was just intrigued about people. So I read my first psychology book when I was 20. I then went on and, and had my family. And so other things took priority and focus. And then in my 30s, I kind of started to notice relationship challenges. So... Then I became interested in sort of like self-help books and relationship books. It reminds me of that kind of scene out of Bridget Jones's diary where she's trying to work out, you know, how to have a relationship. And, you know, they all end up in the bin in the end. And, you know, there was no answer anywhere. And, you know, why was I struggling so much? And then, I mean, the majority of therapists have a story. Okay, so uh, it's kind of like, you know, there's a, the seed was sown in my 20s and then you kind of navigate through life. And then in my 40s, I thought, well, what am I going to do with the rest of it? You know, my children were a little bit older. What was I going to do next? And so it it always been there. And then I thought, oh, well, I'll go and I'll go and see what I do a year foundation course and see what happens. And I enjoyed it. And it kind of piqued the curiosity and then I just threw myself into you know the four years training a further four years training and probably didn't anticipate you know what that four years might might do and then I never intended to do the masters you know I had a I had a wound that I wasn't clever enough Um, and, and again that's another thing that bereaved children experience you know their cheerleader may have gone you know the one that helped them move on with their academics it's interesting I you know I look back at some of the old school reports I was probably a fairly bright young child and then it was just gone and so I I kind of carried that wound of you know I was never clever enough oh I couldn't do it and I have a I have a, a lovely friend um who is a professor of immunology and he trained as a therapist too and we were driving home one 
one day, my lovely Fulvio, and he said, well, are, are you doing the MA? And I went, no, of course I'm not doing it. You know, what, what are you talking about? He went, well, I'm doing it. I went, well, are you? He said, yeah, and you can do it with me. And that's, that's how it happened. He encouraged me and he said, you can do it. Um, and I will be forever grateful to him for encouraging me. And so that's what I did. And then I, 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 I didn't know what, again, with the MA, I didn't, I was, I, I was surrendering to everything and in blind faith just went along with it. And I did my master's, which was hell and back, uh, because it was heuristic. <laughs> and then when I finished that, I, again, because, because of what I was seeing in my practice, I then went on and did my relationship training. Um, and that was really, really useful. And you describe your approach as, and I never know how to say this word, integrative. Is that how the inflection? <laughs> What does this mean? And how do you pronounce it? <laughs> um, I get tongue tied on it too, Renska. <laughs> integrative. It's a hard word. <laughs> um, basically, that brings together uh, various therapeutic orientations. Um, so within my training, there was psychodynamic, which is kind of early life and development, um, humanistic, which is person-centered, um, existential, um, human condition and limitations, and then the transpersonal, which was the focus on potential and growth. Um, so, you know, my research was from a psycho-spiritual perspective you know, what lies within the person that it is, you know, their essence, um, and then the psychological alongside it. It's not spiritual, and it's not just psychological, it's a blend of the two. Um, so it's not focusing on what what happened. It's, it, it's about who somebody is underneath, discovering, you know, who they are, their being, their essence, their individuality. Everyone has a story. And we have a beautiful saying, a transpersonal saying, the veils that cover the soul. And I kind of like that imagery where you think of yourself, these kind of, I want to say almost like neck curtains, you know, they're not, they're not heavy. They're just veils that we, we lift to find the person's being their essence their core their self because that then maximizes their potential they're aligned to themselves they're an individual they're not the same as anybody else and anywhere so i like to think of myself i journey with these people to lift these veils that cover their soul so that's that's an intricative approach with a transpersonal element but of course I draw from all the theories and um, you know over time I've be become particularly interested um, which wasn't in my training around neuroscience I've done a lot of researching and working with trauma-based therapeutic work as well because uh, that's the science behind it and what would you say is the most rewarding part of your job oh many actually makes me feel quite emotional um just to see people um lift 
really lift, that they can find themselves amongst, you know, the harshness of life. It's a beautiful experience. And I will never give up on somebody. I, you know, I, I sit with people and they go, oh, there's something wrong with me. And I, you know, you must be really bored with me. And it's like, no, because I can see you underneath all of that. I am never bored with them. I will keep going. I will never give up on them. And I do. I love that. I love that. that cause, because I know what can happen. You know, if I can do it, seriously, you know, it's not that I'm fully healed. Of course I'm not because I haven't lived the whole of my life and there will always be more. More always comes. But it's enough now that I can navigate it where it's not painful, traumatic, consuming. So it's to find people's truth and joy and essence and everything that they are, not what's happened to them. That's why I do the work. That's why I, I want more. I want to keep the conversations going because everybody deserves to live. Everybody deserves to love and have love. That's it. That is beautiful. And it also leads on nicely to our final question, because we always ask our question, uh, our question, our guests for some advice. And also, I think the way you've been talking throughout our interview, there have been little gems already here and there. But could you offer some like final advice on maybe getting into counseling or for those uh, seeking to learn more about adults, bereaved as children or just any kind of life advice that you would like to share with our listeners, we would be really grateful to listen to. I think if, if someone's interested in therapy, you know, just explore it. it, you know, go with it, see how you feel, like listen to your heart, you know, explore courses, what one fits, what feels right. Do I like it? Do, do I need something different? One that fits with your authenticity and then embrace it and expect a bumpy ride because there's always a bumpy ride. Life advice, I'm not sure there's any client that I don't give this uh, little notion to is be with your emotions. As I've already said, you know, we're, we're a sanitized society. We, you know, we have to be happy and, you know, full of life and all of the time. Yes, that's part of it. And it's hard enough with an inner critic that says I'm not good enough, let alone the outer one says that, you know, there's something wrong with you if you feel sad or you feel, you know, angry. You know, they are challenging emotions, but be with them. They're important. They, they need to be processed. You need to sit with them. You need to understand them. You need to revisit what's not being revisited. And I've come to truly understand that you can transform anything if you sit with it long enough. Um, you know, as neuroscience research shows us, we have enough brain plasticity to change anything we want to. So when someone says to me, oh, I'm always going to be like this, my answer is no, you're not. I don't let them get away with it. <laughs> I'm not saying it's easy. It's not. But it's possible. 
It's being persistent and consistent because you deserve to live. You know, your parent didn't have that that luxury to live their full life, but you do. You really do. So my favorite, my favorite phrase to everybody is, you know, sometimes I have people come in and go, oh, I've had a terrible week, you know, I've been crying, you know, and I just say, great. You know, oh, I'm angry. Excellent. Tell me more. I mean, I remember sitting with my therapist in one session and I think for the whole hour I spent it swearing and shouting, you know, allowing myself to just feel it. And, you know, sometimes, I mean, not so much now, but when I felt anger, I mean, in my master's, it was very interesting. I I have no idea where it came from, but, you know, my husband looked at me and was, you know, looking at this person that was, you know, very angry, but it was grief. So now I tell him if I'm, you know, if I'm hoovering a little bit too fiercely or, you know, whipping a bit too fiercely the cake or something and I just go to him I'm allowed to be angry now so whatever emotions arise just ask yourself what needs attention because that's the psyche's way of bringing what we need you know our minds are marvelous they they tell us what we need we just have to listen to it that's all don't make it complicated Um, And for adults bereaved as children, I guess watch this space, you know, I'm, it's in development, but there are, there are places out there, you know, it's limited, you know, as we know, which is why, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make more available or, you know, voicing or coming on, you know, your, your podcast to make more awareness and keep conversations going. And for all of us to keep talking about it. Well, Mandy, thank you so much for being with us today and sharing all your wonderful insight, both professionally and personally. And I really admire how open you've been talking about your own personal life in this past hour that we've shared with you. And we wish you all the best with developing ABC Grief. Wow. How was that for you, Renska? How did you feel listening back to that episode as we edited and enjoying the experience? I think this is a very powerful and personal, but also professional. It's it's a very moving episode. And I, I always enjoy it when we leave some of our episodes for a little while and then return to them. Because there's loads of things that when you record an interview, you don't really register them or pick up on them but when you return to them they go oh yeah that was really nice and I feel this episode is really jam-packed with lovely little bits of advice and permissions and I think a lot of people who might be bereaved might get a lot out of this episode actually. I completely agree I really picked up on loads of stuff that I just felt was so widely applicable to so many situations I just loved the acknowledgement that it's different for everyone, that grief experiences can be so varied. And I loved ideas around affirming what's what's normal and that there's this really wide spectrum and range of how people might respond to things that are all completely normal. And I just adore the phrase, feelings are meant to be felt. I also really connected with cooking aggressively because that's something (laughs) that I really do, right? So like, I'll be making hummus and I'm going to be bashing that blender to get all those chickpeas moving around. I'm vigorously baking cakes. I just, I take a lot of physical 
kind of stress out in the process of cooking. And from now on, whenever I'm doing that, I'm going to say to myself and anyone who's around, I'm allowed to be angry. I love it. I find it really affirming and yeah, powerful stuff. I just think it's a great episode. I think I found it quite hard at the time of recording because Miles was very, very young. My sound is not great because I, I think I was pitched up somewhere trying to record and had the baby in my arms and things. And I think that I have definitely had, since I've had children, developed a fear of, of dying. I have been quite anxious in the aftermath of an ectopic pregnancy and that I talked about before once on the podcast. And after having children, especially those first months where it's quite hormonally charged, about that, what if I die and leave them? Both a combination of fear of missing out and a fear of the emotional consequences for them. And listening to the bit where it's like, what ages, age brackets, I found that that quite hard. But now listening back, because I'm sort of more out of those immediate hormonal mm. things, that the fear is still there, but it's I feel much more distanced from it. So I find that quite interesting as well, seeing how that has sort of shifted over time. And another phrase I picked up on I loved was the idea of being hurled into the world in loss. So yeah, we are perhaps hurled into the world in loss in a really nice kind of psychoanalytic way of thinking about the self that I just think is fascinating. It's also just listening to you. It, it's it's a fear I've I've heard many mothers talk about and also fathers. And it's I find it interesting in that I wonder how much of that is also kind of like, yeah, our biology protecting and like we need to stick together as a unit and be together as a family and yeah not leave our children but because also like you and listening back to this episode it's like oh so after a certain age it is it's more expected so it's kind of better but then also I feel even if you lose your parents late in life so my grandmother died a few years ago so my mom had her mother well into her 50s but then it's still kind of a disruption and new generation and then becoming the older generation so i feel wherever on the life course you might lose a parental figure it's always i feel traumatic or some form of trauma and for some people it's it's very accepted and it's the natural way of things but there is i think so much with losing a parent that is yeah wrapped around your personal identity also perhaps who you might want to be in the future so i think there's it's it's one of the reasons when for my masters i researched parental bereavement because at that time i thought what is the worst kind of death i can imagine and at that point in time in my early 20s i thought yeah losing my parents would be quite bad and then i also realized because as I said in the interview, there isn't really any statistics in the Netherlands available for how many people are actually parentally bereaved. But I very quickly came to a quite large number of people. I only interviewed eight people from my master's, but I could have had loads more people because <laughs> everyone knew someone. And then it's from teenagers, young adulthood, but also, yeah, some of my friends have lost their parents very early in life. And there's something about that that it's very present but also quite hidden and absent at the same time yeah absolutely I, I couldn't agree more and I've been listening lately to a podcast called all there is with Anderson Cooper who's talking about his mother having just died and then the he's clearing out her apartment and that's like prompting these conversations and thoughts as he goes through her things 
And then he interviews different people who've also been bereaved. And the loss of his mother then brings back, well, I, I say brings back, but of course they've always been there. They're always there. These other losses in his life, including his brother's death by suicide and various other losses. And that is, I think, quite, yeah, a really powerful podcast and has quite a lot of resonances with what Mandy's been talking about in this episode. So it might be a nice kind of partner listen if you've got a bit of time to delve into something that that also, like Mandy's episodes, they have a lot of really nice, thoughtful advice around the idea of like suffering as part of life and sitting with that, holding pain and joy together, I think is how Mandy put it. And I really like that, embracing that ambivalence of of holding these two things at once, of being both sad and happy, of, of bittersweetness. Yeah, love it. And also, like Mandy said, it's sometimes the joy and also unexpected moments, because I really loved her talking about how since the birth of her grandchild, she can finally enjoy Christmas and go all out and then it's it's taken decades for that to to happen and to emerge so and as she was reflecting in the episode how long it's been since her mother's death but it's still kind of there and still always developing in unexpected ways because I think for me a big takeaway message is also as you said everything is normal or is allowed you're allowed to feel whatever you're allowed to feel you're allowed to have emotions but also it is a lifelong journey and it might yeah come and go yeah certainly I I did find it a really affirming episode in in that sense and hopefully other listeners who've who've had experiences that that might benefit from a bit of affirmation will also feel that way I also really liked and thought it was really uplifting that Mandy had had a positive male role model, someone who'd been supportive and helpful in that academic experience of feeling that perhaps that's not for me. And, and someone just being like, yeah, of course you're going to do it. You're going to do it. I, I just think that's wonderful. And it's so nice to hear that. And, and obviously what a fantastic thing that 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 happened. And that I mean, I've said enough favourite phrases from this episode, but I'm going to give one more favourite phrase. I love the question, what needs attention? what needs attention right now in yourself, in, in your body, in your mind? And, and I think sometimes for me, it's also flipping that question and thinking, what doesn't need my attention right now that I'm giving attention to that is is only making me a bit unhappy so I could shift that. I think that is a nice point to end our lovely December episode because also as we come to the end of the year we might feel frustrated for the things we were planning to do but but didn't do but yeah what does what deserves your attention right now and just enjoy the last month of the year and be kind to yourself thank you for listening to the deaf studies podcast you can find out more about our guests and their work in the show notes or on our website thedeafstudypodcast.com If you enjoyed listening to us, please leave us a comment, follow us on social media at The Deaf Podcast, and of course, spread the word.